We pick up this morning in Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, we see the general revelation of God in His creation and His special revelation in His Word. This morning, we'll look at that so that we may enjoy what is acceptable to Him and rewarding to us. So in a nutshell, we're looking this morning at the general revelation of God in creation, the special revelation of God in His Word, so that we will understand what it means to be acceptable to Him, that we would enjoy that and worship Him rightly. There's a reward in that. We get that term, that actual term reward, from this text. I have an outline for you. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you so you know where we're headed. Normally I wait and kind of give it to you as we go. But I want you to, from the beginning, have an understanding of the structure of this psalm. Point number one, God's glory revealed in His work. God's glory revealed in His work. Point number two, God's story revealed in His Word. You don't need to write this down right now. If you are, that's fine, but I'm going to give it to you again later. God's story revealed in His Word. And then point number three, God's children rewarded in their worship. God's children rewarded in their worship. God's revelation is generally given to all mankind, but He has also spoken specifically or in special terms to His children. In the same way that you might write a letter to one of your children with a specific message for that child, with a language that perhaps only your family understands. You find a box of letters from your great-great-great-grandfather in the attic at your parents' home, you probably don't understand the detail nearly as much as a closer descendant would. But for the one to whom those letters were directly written, there's a special message. You might get the general message understanding of those letters, but you wouldn't understand the heartfelt desire of a person who is writing to a specific person. In the same way, when you look at a letter written to you by someone that's close to you, you understand the nuance of that relationship, and that, in a sense, serves as the bedrock for understanding the powerful message given to you in that letter. You know how this works. You get a voicemail from someone who got the wrong number. You don't really care what they have to say. On the other hand, if it's from a person that you've been awaiting a call from, you're listening closely, and you probably listen to it a second and third time just to make sure you got it right. It's a foolish thing to set the works of God against the Word of God, as they are from the same author and they tell the same story. God is great and man is not. This is the message of God in creation. It is the message of God in His Word. It's from the same author. And so, as I said, it would be erroneous to attempt to decide that they somehow work against each other. The concept that all things simply existed out of nothing with no author is just a really bizarre thought. I had a discussion with this uh, about this last night with one of my sons, and he said, you know, I, I understand how I understand the fact that God created all things, but I don't understand how he got created. And so I said, well, he didn't. And so still, that doesn't, that doesn't eliminate any of the confusion to just say that. So it took a little bit of time to sit with him and say, well, bud, God is different from you and me. And to quote A.W. Tozer, he is other than we are. But the unfortunate reality of the mind that is not 
inclined to listen to or receive the word of God, that mind is inclined to look at God through the grid of his own limitations. God himself is greater than we are. And we see this in creation. And we certainly see it in his word. But man thinks himself to be so lofty and so great and so fantastic that he looks down on God as if God somehow suffers from and is limited by the same restrictions that man himself experiences. But the exact opposite is true. This is why in Hebrews 4 verse 12 we're told that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It separates joint from sinew, bone from marrow. It separates that which is inseparable. It separates the soul from the spirit. And in so doing, it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart, and man sadly has tried to return the favor. God has displayed all that's necessary in his word for man to understand God to the degree that is necessary, but also for man to understand himself to the degree that is necessary. But sadly, man has rejected God's word. I'm guilty myself of having rejected God's word, and in so doing, we somehow come up with bizarre ideas. And to quote John MacArthur, the concept of evolution is the idea that no one times nothing equals everything. Really kind of distills it quite well, doesn't it? But in reality, before you and I in our limitations, we being non-eternal entities in that we have not existed in eternity past, we are eternal into the future, but in that we are not eternal in the past, We don't comprehend all that existed before we existed, but the idea that God is somehow limited by the same limitations that I'm limited by is a complete misconception, and it really is an incredibly silly and lofty view of oneself. See, God is outside of time, space, and history, and he's given us, as I said, all that's necessary in creation in his word to help us understand who he is and who we are and what we must do to, in fact, be pleasing to him and to experience his favor. So my, my point is a sub-point, and the idea is this, and it's really important that you and I understand this, and that is the fact that God's creation is not somehow opposed to God's word. Uh, studying science is not going to bring you to conclusions, if you do it honestly, that are other than what's in the scripture, because they are given to us by the same author. They are completely and perfectly congruous. You say, well, then why does, why does science keep coming up with things that oppose God's word? And, and I say quite simply because they're looking for it. But an honest approach to the scripture along with an honest approach to creation will bring you to the conclusion that they are completely congruous. In Psalm 19, we have a systematic theology. It's really the first systematic theology. It's a neatly packaged, tightly wound, clearly presented doctrinal statement. In it, God first explains the purpose and power of his general revelation, his creation, his handiwork, as the psalmist calls it, his masterful work, creating all things out of nothing to which all mankind must pay attention and can't help but notice. It is that which makes all men to be without excuse. God's creation displays his glory before all creation. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. It is a comprehensive, general expression of his character. When we talk about general revelation, we mean that term specifically in two 
concepts. It is a general expression of all that there is to know about God. It's, it's not all the detail, but it's a general expression. We have enough to know enough about God. So the other issue then is that it's given to the general population. All mankind looks at God's creation. He can't ignore it. You say, well, what if he's shut up in a box all by himself and he can't see the mountains and the sun and the moon? He can still touch himself. He still knows that he exists and he still knows that someone created him. Next, in Psalm 19, the psalmist explains God's special revelation to his children. His specific message to those he loves with a special love. That which requires illumination of the eyes and revival of the soul. We'll talk more in detail about this as we go. But then he speaks of the reward for obeying God and the warning against disobedience to him. He warns against presumptuous sins. You know what presumption is. We'll look at that also. To borrow from Warren Wiersbe's outline of this psalm, in verses 1 through 6, God speaks in the skies. In verses 7 through 11, he speaks in the scriptures. And in verses 12 through 14, he speaks in the soul. Here is the psalm. I'll read it to you. You can listen along and read along if you like. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As I said to you, God's glory is revealed in his work. In verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That which is every day exhibited before the very eyes of man, the heavens, the visible sky above, puts fully on display, whether by day or by night, concrete evidence and proof of the existence of the Creator. There is no discussion at hand here. No argument is necessary. No need of defending the existence of God. If anything exists, it has been created by a competent creator who predates its creation. We call this an axiomatic truth. The proof of an axiomatic truth is in the uninterrupted, inarguable expression of that truth. All persons know he 
exists because his creation declares it. But creation not only declares his existence, more specifically here, it declares his glory. The magnificence of who he displayed in his handiwork. He's displaying his own glory in what he has done. God is declared in creation to be great, mighty, and magnificent. He's no God of man's creation or man's design. He's not limited by man's imagination and creative abilities. He's glorious. He is all glorious. He is great beyond man's ability to comprehend. In Job chapter 38, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then as you know, God goes on to ask Job a series of questions. Where were you when I created the Leviathan? I watched a a, a editorial type program last night with my boys that explained the inner workings of the hippopotamus and the rhinoceros and the crocodile. And a lot of theologians think that the Leviathan in the book of Job is actually a crocodile. It doesn't take much to watch a little bit of activity of one of these truly amazing animals to say that only a great God could create it with such detail, magnificence, strength, power, and speed. And yet, on the other hand, somehow man looks at such a creation, denies that someone created it, and actually, in some cases, worships it. The book of Job is a tremendous treatise on the, the pride and arrogance and the foolishness of man to be willing to look at the creation and not be mesmerized. It's really the point. It's really what God's trying to create in Job's mind is a a, a willingness to humble himself and to recognize that he's not as just as he has claimed to be. Job was a righteous man, but he yet had much pride. And so God brought him to his knees through much great difficulty and trial and still asks the question, where were you when I did what I did? That began to prime the pump. It kind of stirred up the rust in Job's heart. And eventually Job bowed his knee before the Lord and said, I've heard of you, now I see you. I get it a little bit better. And that ought to be the progressive reality of our lives as we acknowledge the existence of God. That in and of itself is enough information based upon what we have in creation to bring us to our knees, to be humbled by the reality that he is the creator God and we ourselves are not. See, God alone understands the things in the book of Job and all other things in creation with perfection because he created them. You and I don't understand these things with perfection. We understand them enough to be wowed by them, to be mesmerized by them. Yet he's given mankind, all of mankind, enough understanding to see that they exist and therefore warrant and necessitate the fact that he exists. No one can claim to have created anything as magnificent as the Lord has. And all things that man has created are the indirect result of the fact that God created the man that created it. Man tends to forget that, doesn't he? As I said earlier, this is what makes God other than we are. The prophet Isaiah records in Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. In verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
There's no physical, audible, literal voice that comes to you and says, God exists. But the reality of creation speaks to you with equal or perhaps more clarity than that of an actual audible voice. You don't find the words in the Bible, God exists. There's no real attempt to defend God's existence. There is an assumption that all people who exercise any degree of their cerebral ability are going to acknowledge that God exists because it's just phenomenally obvious. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But friends, he cannot believe it. It's a theological impossibility. But what he attempts to do, even though he himself doesn't believe what he says, because he believes that he perhaps can convince someone else of that, he does his best to do so. And so, as I mentioned, you have the doctrine of Freudian psychology, which is false teaching. You also have evolution, both of which intended in their premise and their foundation to eliminate God. You say, well, who... Who were the first people ever to do this? Your parents. Their names are Adam and Eve. Not the parents that raised you. They weren't the first ones to do that. Nor am I the first one to do that with my boys, right? Adam and Eve wanted God's existence to not be a reality. And so what did they do? The best they could, they hid. They didn't create some kind of philosophy like man does today, but they hid. And in so doing, they wanted God to not find them. They wanted him to not exist day to day pours out speech it's a metaphor from one day to the next creation nature is constantly exposing reality everywhere you go and everything you see you see the existence of God more specifically you see the creation of God more specifically you see the glory of God displayed in all that he has done creation is God's visual doctrinal statement No need for PowerPoint. Man has all he needs to be certain that God exists. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its Heat. There's nothing hidden from the sun's heat. That in and of itself ought to be a clue for mankind that God has created things in such a way that the sun itself provides exactly what we need to stay alive. The heat of the sun finds itself in every place. You say, well, what about those places that are really, really, really cold? Without the sun, they would be impossibly cold. Things would freeze and break and people would die and no one could survive. The sun does what it does with God's design and in its perfection. It goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Is what you and I experience when we look at the later part of the day and the sun seems to be going down. We call it the sunset. And it's not going down and it doesn't actually rise in the morning, but the idea in God's perfect creation, in God's perfect design, is that wherever you live on the earth, you get the beauty and the joy and the experience of seeing the sun for a while and then not for a while. And so it's refreshing in the morning that the sun does what it does, and it is as, as if it is coming out of its tent to do its work. In that you and I, as individuals today, in our context, in our culture, rest in the evening. For the Hebrew person, he would have gone down in a tent. 
So that language would mean even more to him than it does for you and me. The sun, in a sense, exhibits the rest that you and I experience on a regular basis. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. It's something that you and I can get our arms around. Certainly the the Hebrew reader, the Hebrew listener would have had a a full and and even closer understanding of this. So verse 5, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. The bridegroom leaves his chamber when it's time for him to be united with his bride. And he does so with fullness. He comes out with joy. He comes out with meaning. with purpose, with great fervor. He's got direction. He's committed to this. You see, God's creation of the sun and its design and how he planned for it to do what it does is purposeful. In the same way that when the bridegroom comes out of his chamber, he's got his wife to be on his mind and he is desirous of being united with her and so he looks forward to that in the same way that the son does what it does with meaningfulness and direction it's like a strong man who runs its course with joy a strong man is a man who's prepared for the race he's done what he has done to be ready to run with joy you've been in a circumstance where you hadn't prepared for something physical and it wasn't so joyous I ran the hurdles in high school. I did a number of sports-related things in high school. Track was not one of my better events. And uh, so my senior year, I decided I was going to run the hurdles. And uh, where I grew up, back in southwest Missouri, we didn't run on this, this nice, smooth, rubberized track, uh, these synthetic things that uh, make running and even falling not so painful. It was cinder, black cinder. And so I hit the uh, of, of the sixth hurdles, I hit the fourth one a little bit, and uh, wearing out, I got to the fifth one, I hit a little bit harder, I got to the sixth one, I was so tired, I didn't even jump. <laughs> and that hurdle and I became entangled in each other, and the cinder block all over that track became entangled in my skin. Why? Because I hadn't prepared. Number one, I was much too much out of shape since football season it had been several months earlier, and um, I really didn't practice well enough to get the hurdles down. The strong man runs the race with joy because he's ready for it. Nature, God's creation, is ready to do its role. It sets out with no confusion. So when you and I look on creation, we recognize in the same way of the metaphor of the bridegroom who comes out with purpose, of the strong man who comes out with joy, creation does what it does with fullness of effect. There's no confusion. The only confusion in man's mind is the result of others trying to confuse him. Surely this somehow just resulted from some sort of bang. I don't think anybody really believes that at all. So, although it is not their intention, even the evolutionist declares the glories of God when he acknowledges the greatness, vastness, and complexity of what he says started with an unsolicited pow. In and of that very statement, he expresses the greatness of God's glory, and he doesn't even do it on purpose. In Romans 1, I won't read you the whole section, but in verses 19 to 25, Paul declares the reality that man, because of God's creation, is without excuse. There's no excuse. The person who declares that there is no God is inexcusable in his either dishonesty or his foolishness or a little bit of both. Many times it's an admixture of dishonesty and a a foolish willingness to believe that someone else might actually be convinced that God does not exist and he did not create all things that are created. 
But Paul says here that he is without excuse. We want to take a closer look this morning, or a close look, I should say, at what we've referred to at this point as God's special revelation. We've looked at general revelation. And as I said, general revelation is for the general population of all the world. Everyone who has ever lived throughout history knows that God exists because there is something that is created by that creating God. But then there is special revelation. You see this throughout the scripture, but specifically in the breakdown of this passage in verses 7 through 10, point number two, God's story revealed in his word. You have God's glory revealed in his work, but here we're going to look at God's story revealed in his word. What story? His story of redemption. His plan of salvation. The clarion call to those who will receive the word to repent and believe in the gospel is ultimately what we're looking at. But in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul is really the beginning place. If you're reading from the New American Standard, it says it restores the soul. And this is not the idea that you're having a bad day and you sit down and you read your Bible and you, you think okay, I'm, I'm better, I'm recalibrated, I, I, I feel good now. I've read some truth, my mind is changed, I'm thinking rightly as opposed to thinking wrongly, and, and I'm restored. That's not what this is. This is the restoration of the soul. This is the awakening of the mind. This is the causing of a dead heart to be made alive. That's why the ESV translates it as revive. There was no life, and then there is life. Why? Because of the law of God. This is the word Torah here in the Hebrew. The Old Testament Hebrew mind would have generally thought of the first five books of the Old Testament when this word is used. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Generally speaking, the Old Testament individual, the Old Testament citizen, uh, the Hebrew individual would have thought of the first five books. But that's not the idea here. It's not the usage here. Here, it's a reference to God's teaching on the whole. God's direction for mankind. His instruction. You can say it this way. It's the heart of God on paper. It is God's will in print. It's His decrees in a book. It is the totality and purpose of God. It is His word, specifically to His children. The idea that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, is a specific message for those who would receive his word and receive it eagerly. In his general revelation to mankind, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's Jesus' words from Matthew 5.45. So there is a general expression. Some refer this to as common grace. That God has extended his grace, maybe better stated, his mercy to all of mankind. And in so doing, a large portion of that is the reality that he's given general revelation. But as we look at specific or special revelation, we're looking at that which God has given to his particular children. And he has done so at the same time he has illumined their minds to understand it. This is a story of redemption. The word of God is infallible. It will not fail. 
It shall not return void, according to the prophet Isaiah. But it must be rightly addressed. It must be rightly understood. I've watched a number of videos and other things online recently where I'm, I'm seeing individuals use the Word of God for their own purposes without any real honest approach to the particular point of the particular text. And then you'll even hear someone say, make this comment from time to time, what I've just told you is true, now let me show you the proof text. Can I just tell you that, that that's, that's laziness? The person who uses the phrase proof text with some pride and says, I'm proving it from the text, has got it completely backwards. He's giving you his opinion and his statements about things, and he goes to the Bible and flips around and finds something that sounds enough like what he's just told you to prove to you that what he's saying is true. It's completely backwards. The role of the teacher of the Word of God is to dig deeply under the dominion of the Holy Spirit to rightly understand what's there and deliver it plainly. Let me just confess something to you. I had this message prepared for this morning. This morning as I'm going over it, I'm looking at some sub-points that I was about to make. And I, and I said to myself, that's not what he's saying. Man, I'd sure like to say it this morning. Because it's on my heart and I think it should be said. But it's not part of the text. So in an effort to go back through my notes and make sure that what I'm saying is truly coming out of the text of Scripture, I just deleted it. That kind of approach to the Word of God is what we all must individually and collectively be committed to so that we rightly understand the power of the message and the significance of the reality that it is the Word of God that restores or revives the soul. Hermeneutically speaking, you see a cause and effect relationship here. The cause is God's law. The effect, conversion, salvation, Redemption. A dead heart is made alive by the word of God alone. Only the word of God can accomplish this. In James 1, starting with verse 18, James really helps unfold this concept for us. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. You say, I know somebody who got saved just because they saw, they watched a movie, and they came out of the movie, and all of a sudden they loved God. Or, you know, they were out on a boat ride. They were on the lake, and they just said, man, this is cool out here. I think I'm going to give my life to Christ. I'm not going to say I know what's going on and somebody says something like that, but I know what's not going on, and it's not biblical redemption. It's not Christianity. Again, that could be the honest response to God's general revelation, but it is the Word of God that saves. It is the word of God that restores the soul. Again, verse 18 of James 1, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Uh, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now you've probably used this passage used to help someone with their anger. The specific anger here is for the word of God. It's not unusual for someone to hear the word of God proclaimed with clarity and truth and in its personal offense to the sinner to respond with anger. I don't like what I heard. This is exactly the passage that that person needs to be approached with. 
This is the mindset. Too many people are not slow to anger, but they are quick to speak. But James' words are in the light of the fact that God uses his word and his word alone to save the sinner's soul. Be slow to respond. The proverb says, he who is wise restrains his lips. Be slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's the word of God that saves the soul. What does that mean? It means when there is a right expression and honest delivery of the data specifically related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of God is the vehicle by which that person is saved, by which that person's soul is saved for all eternity. Then he says this in verse 22, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, you see the idea? The idea is that there is a willingness and an eagerness to embrace what has been told the person from the word of God such that his life exhibits that in action. He does something. In fact, he does what's right in light of what he's been told. He doesn't just agree with the doctrine. I mean, you know people like that. Maybe you've been that person in the past. The person who says, yeah, I'm committed to God's sovereignty. You know, it's usually a Calvinist, to be honest with you. I believe in Calvinism. Now, let's go and forget everything we just talked about and act like idiots. You know, that happens. <laughs> Sadly, and I'm, you know, I'm all for Calvinism, and I think it's completely biblical. But the sad reality that there are those who who begin to see the truths of the doctrines of grace and they forget that they are doctrines of grace. And they take them and they beat other people over the head with them. That's not being a doer of the word. It's being a hearer of the word and a rejecter of the word. Listen now, he says this. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he has, was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law that what? The law that restores the soul, the law that revives the dead soul. That's what he looks at. Why? Because it revived him. He recognizes that it was the word of God that brought revival to his heart. And so he goes back to it for more. It is that river of life to which he returns again and again and again. As Jesus says, he will never thirst again. In his thirst for truth, he goes to truth. James goes on here. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You get that? I love that. He'll be blessed in his doing. In other words, he's not waiting for the blessing to come in some sort of reward. He's not waiting for the blessing to come in getting something out of a response to what he's doing. The blessing is in the doing. He responds to the word by doing what the word calls him to do. And the blessing is in that. And he says, this is good enough. That's the blessing. Responding to God's word with a changed heart and a changed life. In 1 Peter 1 verse 20, Peter says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, 
love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you, listen to this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. It was an honest and accurate delivery of the word of God with an honest and accurate receiving of the word of God, which is not perishable, it's imperishable. It's living and active, and it is living and active forever. It is the eternal word of God, and it does not change. And by the way, it has never changed. The word of God that you hold in your hand is the word of God in eternity past. It didn't get created. It has always been what it is. You say, how is that possible? Because some of the contents of it took place 2,000 years ago and others of it between that and 3,500 years ago and some of that even beyond that. Because God in his sovereign decree determined what his word is in eternity past and it unfolded over the course of history and yet continues to do so. What you hold in your hand is the perfect, eternal Word of God, and it is by the Word of God by which men are saved, and there is nothing else by which men are saved. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's the word of God. Nothing else. Nothing else saves man. That, by the way, was from Romans 10. Moving on in verse 7 of our psalm, Psalm 19. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony. You know what a testimony is? It's difficult to turn on the television these days without seeing some kind of court case made public. And you're hearing testimony and another testimony and another testimony. And this really, in essence, is no different. We're talking about God's testimony, what God has said, what God testifies of. Just as in a court of law, one gives his record of the details of an event to which he has been a witness. So God himself does in his word. It's his testimony. He has testified to what is true, right, and eternally helpful. And that testimony brings wisdom to the one who is not wise, but would be. How about that? You say there are times where I I feel like I just can't figure things out. There are times where I can't make a decision to save my life. There are times where I'm stuck between the simplest of options. And I don't know what to do. The Word of God says the Word of God will make you wise. There's no other place you need to go, not really. If you want wisdom, the book of James tells us that wisdom is given to us in abundance if we will simply ask. Proverbs 9, verses 8 and 9. Do not reprove a scoffer. It's the guy who doesn't want wisdom, but wants everybody to think he has it. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. See that? The man who would be wise is a man who loves instruction. Can I just tell you, can I just get real personal for a minute and tell you that there are men in our church from whom I love to be instructed. There are men with whom I meet on a regular basis. And were it not for their willingness and their love for me and their desire to see our church honor the Lord Jesus Christ, if it were not for their willingness to look me in the eye and tell me what they think, I'd kind of be a mess. 
There's absolutely no ability to gain wisdom without surrounding yourself with godly people who also are seeking instruction that they too would be wise. See, this isn't just for everybody who's not in the pastorate. Certainly isn't forever, just for everybody who's not in governmental leadership. The wisdom that the Lord provides is for everyone who would seek it and seek it rightly. Why? Because the testimony of the Lord is sure. That's why. The testimony of God, his declaration is certain. It's not unsure. You've been unsure. I've been unsure. The word of God is not unsure. It is sure. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. It is sure. It is certain. It is concretely fixed with no error. The naive, the simple, the foolish one will be made wise by listening to and embracing the word of God. That's where wisdom comes from. There are those who feign wisdom quite well, but ultimately they are shown to be unwise in their rejection of the word of God. You want to know whether or not someone is wise? Take a close look. Examine whether or not they are closely adhering to the truths of the word of God. That's the wise person. Whether or not he has some sort of 21st century appearance of wisdom is not the issue. The issue is, does he adhere to the plain truth, the simple reality, the testimonies of God, which are sure? That's the wise person. Proverbs 4, verse 7 says, the beginning of wisdom is this. I love this. I love this. Listen to this. The beginning of wisdom is this. You ready? Get wisdom. That's not what you were expecting, huh? How do I get wisdom? You get wisdom. Yeah, it's that simple. Okay, there's more to it. The proverb goes on then to say, and whatever you get, get insight. But the point is, the idea of the fact that to, if you want wisdom, you go get wisdom, is that it's gettable. There's a good word for you. You can obtain it. It's, if, it's within hand's reach for those who would search it out and seek it rightly. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Be the person who makes sense. Be the person to whom others go when they're struggling with what to do and how to think rightly. Verse 8 of Proverbs 4, prize her highly, prize wisdom highly, and she will exalt you, she will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction and do not let go. Guard her. She is your life. Wisdom should be your life. Proverbs 8, 32. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. As you gain wisdom, don't reject it. Don't throw it off. Don't put it away for another day. Hang on to wisdom. Now, how about this, though? Romans 12, verse 16 says, Never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. The minute you believe you're wise is the minute you have proven you're not. Why? Well, because you think you're wise and you don't have anything else to gain. You don't need instruction. I've got it all. Some men get just enough of the word of God to think that they can convince others that they are wise, only to show themselves to be unwise. 
They want just enough to be able to use it to prove themselves to have some knowledge of the Word of God. The story goes of one man, and I did a little research, and I couldn't find out who, who it was. I thought I knew who it was, but I was wrong. But the story goes of one man who, in an effort to impress people, attempted to quote John 16.3. What he meant to say was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him might not, might not perish, but have eternal life. John 16.3 speaks of those who don't know the Lord. It's not unusual for a man to twist and use the word of God for his own purposes and then ultimately to be shown to be actually foolish rather than actually wise. Proverbs 11 verse 2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Do you know that? There's no way around humility to get to wisdom. The gateway to wisdom is actually humility, not a PhD at a well-known university. You can get a lot of knowledge, and that's fantastic, and if that's your desire, you should do that. But wisdom comes exclusively through humility. Why? Because the man who thinks much of himself doesn't think he needs wisdom. He thinks he's wise. The humble man who considers others as more important than himself, that's the man who gains wisdom and is actually useful Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, But this is the one to whom I look. This is the Lord speaking. This is the one to whom I look. Do you want to be that person? You want to be the person to whom the Lord turns his attention? That's that's what you want, right? You want God's grace. You want God's kindness. You want God's love. This is the one to whom I look, the Lord says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Friends, I know men who stand in the pulpit and do not tremble at the word of God. They, they preach it with arrogance and pride and, and boldness of foolishness and use it for nothing more than beating people over the head with it, attempting to persuade them to change their behavior rather than to plead with them to have a change of heart. It's not unusual, really. If you own a television or even an iPhone or some sort of electronic device, it's not hard to find someone who just speaks the word of God flippantly grabbing passages here and there and really never honoring the word of God at all, but using it, as I said, for their own purposes. Proverbs 1 speaks of that man. I won't read the whole passage to you, but if you start with verse 20 and go down to verse 32, the proverb says this of the man who has misused the word of God, for the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them passage tells us that God laughs at their calamity. But I love this in the final verse. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. See the written record of God's works through redemptive history are enough for the child to recognize the existence of God. But he must have a recognition of the word of God to have the wisdom of God. Verse 8. Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now this is that passage where you're having a bad day and you sit down and you read the word of God and you see the truth that he loves you and he cares for you and he has provided for you as he has always provided everything that's necessary for all his children and you feel better. Your joy is restored. That's what this is. The statutes of the Lord, his commandments... Psalm 119 verse 50 says it this way. 
This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. So what is that, what, what's going on? Well, I'm down, I'm discouraged, I'm downtrodden. And I go to the word and I remember that it is God who has saved me. And so my, my joy has returned. David in Psalm 51 speaks of, of the return of that joy as the healing of his bones. Uh, the, the discouragement in his heart, the depression in his soul is every bit as real as a broken bone. And he attributes that to personal sin. So he pleads with God to blot out that sin and that he would restore the joy of his salvation. You see, that's what reading of the word of God should do. There's an example of this in Proverbs 19, verse 23. Listen to this. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. You having trouble sleeping? I don't think this is a quick fix. You know, you don't take the word of God to use it as some sort of magical incantation and you read it once and bang, it changes, right? That's not how it works. And if it does work, I'd be scared that maybe something weird is going on. Sanctification takes time. The person who fears God over time, the person who subjects himself to the Lord over time, will find that the fear of the Lord leads to life and that he will sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. The issue, he's got a, he's got a clear conscience. A person who goes to bed with an unclear conscience, he can't sleep because he's mulling over things that he knows that were not right. He mishandled things. He dishonored the Lord. He lied. He did whatever he did. And so he can't sleep. And at the point where that person is able to sleep without having the conscience pricked and exposed and corrected, that's a really bad spot to be in because his conscience is seared as with a hot iron. But on the other hand, the person who is having trouble, whether it's sleeping or whatever, throughout the day, what does he need? He needs a careful recognition of the reality that the precepts of the Lord are right. They are right and they rejoice the heart. They restore joy to the human heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, David goes on to say here, enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord has no impurity. If the commandment of the Lord, if any part of the word of God has any flaw, any impurity, any speck of theological dust, then this passage is a lie. Do you believe this or not? Do you believe the word of God to be sufficient to enlighten your eyes? When God tells man in Matthew 5, let what you say become simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He has the credibility to say that because his word is completely flawless. It's completely pure. James says it this way in James 5 verse 12, but above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You see, the Lord has the credibility to make such a statement because his commandments are pure and they enlighten the eyes. What is this idea that they enlighten the eyes? In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, we're told that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot discern them. Why? Because his spiritual eyes are closed. Spiritual eyes are closed. He's spiritually dead. He hears the word of God. He thinks there's some value in it, especially when he reads through the Proverbs. He sees all these axiomatic truths. Yeah, stay out of a dark alley, you won't get 
hit over the back of the head in a dark alley, that kind of thing. You know, you see the truths of, uh, the axiomatic truths of basic reality in the Proverbs, but he gets to the doctrine of the Bible and he says, Psh, I don't get it, it doesn't make any sense. So he has made himself the judge of the word of God. The problem is that his eyes are not illumined. His eyes are not opened. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 2, having said, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually praised, verse 15, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This simply means that you understand the word of God. If you're in Christ, the spirit of God indwells you. Paul has just given this wonderful illustration of the reality that your spirit knows best what's going on in your mind right now. Who knows what's going on in the nuts and bolts of your brain better right now than you? Nobody. I can't read your mind. You can't read mine. Your spirit knows best what's going on inside of you. Your spirit knows you better than anyone. In the same way, Paul goes on to say that the spirit of God knows God better than anyone. Same way that your spirit knows you better than anybody. And then he says this. The spirit of God indwells you. So if the Spirit of God indwells you, your eyes are illumined. Your eyes are opened. No longer is it true of you that you are the natural man who cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to you. Or you don't accept them because they are foolishness to you and you cannot discern them. He has opened your eyes and he has done so by indwelling you. He has caused you to have the ability and the desire to honor and obey God's word. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring, Forever, uh, these other words are synonyms of the word of God. Fear is not. Fear is, is not a synonym for the word of God, as the others are, but fear of God is a certain result of observing and understanding God's word, and it has a cleansing effect, right? Fear of God, right, honest, spirit-filled fear of God has a cleansing effect. It causes you to be fearful of the things that God pours out his wrath for. In Romans 1.18, we are told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That should strike fear in your heart and in my heart. And it should have a cleansing effect on us. It should cause us to not want to suppress the truth. It should cause us to want to eradicate our hearts of anything ungodly and unrighteous. The fear of God is clean and by the way, it endures forever. It's everlasting. Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God will stand forever. Psalm 119 verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. In its utter and pure and perfect state, it resides in eternity past in heaven can depend on it. Continuing in verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The judgments, if you're reading the NAS, the judgments of God are true. They are not untrue. In any governmental system of justice, some judgments will be true and some will be untrue. With God, he cannot be untrue and his judgments are always right. 
His judgments are always an exact representation of his true and righteous character. What God has established as right is right. Psalm 101 verse 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God cannot judge wrongly. It's impossible because he is perfect himself. He judges perfectly. And you and I should remember to thank God that he is just when he judges. Even when that judgment upon us is painful and difficult, the momentary response, the right response in that moment is, God, thank you that you are just when you judge. Verse 10, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You understand this. Honey is sweet. It's easy to eat. It's easy to take in. It, it's enjoyable. The Word of God ought to be that for you and for me. It ought to be like much fine gold. You know, no one would turn away gold. Someone gives you a bunch of gold. Thank you. Thanks for the gold. That's got value. In the same way, when someone presents the Word of God to you, your, your soul ought to long for that moment. This is one of the reasons we make such a big deal out of and put such a tremendous emphasis on the worship service where the Word of God is delivered for a collective opportunity for everyone in our church. That we would all together hear the Word of God and be moved by it at the same time that the Spirit of God would use us most effectively. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. You know this from Psalm 1. It makes him as a tree firmly planted by streams of water. I spent a lot of time in a canoe growing up. And sometimes it was amazing to see that so much of the dirt had been washed away by the river or the creek that we were floating on that so many tree roots were sticking out. You'd think that tree was going to fall over, but no. Because the roots that we couldn't see ran so deep that that tree was a tree of great strength. In the same way, the person who longs for the Word of God has great strength. The man who falls apart at any given moment. The man who uh, allows the circumstances of life to bring his faith to a screeching halt is the man who is not firmly rooted in the Word of God. And how does this begin? What about the new Christian? What does he do? Where does he start? He starts with the pure milk of the Word. This is why in Ironman and in WOW, we give sound doctrine in small doses. The nutrition that a baby receives from a baby bottle is to be every bit, maybe even more nutritious than that of filet mignon. It's just in a different form. It's more palatable. It's much more easily digested. But it's still truth. It's rich, nutritional truth. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 and verse 11 says about Christ. We have much to say and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. How's that for winning friends and influencing people? You imagine a pastor standing before his congregation. That's what's going on here and saying you're dull of hearing. But he goes on to explain why. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. See, what's wrong with the guy who's been in the church for a long, 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 long time, and he doesn't be able to have any discernment, any wisdom, any insight? He's been rejecting the milk, the pure milk of the word of God. And maybe even trying to handle things where the meat of the word of God is much more difficult to handle. But he bypassed the step of drinking the pure milk of the word of God. Point number three. God's children were rewarded in their worship. We've seen God's glory revealed in his work. We've seen God's story of redemption revealed in his word. And now we see God's children rewarded in their worship. In this section of Psalm 19, David reveals the doctrine of Romans 12, 1-2 to be true. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In verse 11 of Psalm 19, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. By your precepts, by God's commands, by God's law. There is a warning in the word of God. Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 22, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? The word of God is full of warning. It's nothing to be trifled with. The person who engages in presumptuous sin is warned in this text. Continuing in verse 11, in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? In other words, who can discern in his own life whether he is engaging in that which is going to bring God's discipline and potentially his wrath versus those things that are going to result in reward? Who can discern the mistakes he's making in that regard? Well, man certainly can't do it on his own. There is reward, though, in the simple embracing of God's word and applying it to your life in a way that is reflected in your day-to-day details. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 lays this out for us with great simplicity. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. That's a simple start to this. The person who keeps the commands of the word of God. And where is that? In his actions? Not so much. It's more so in his heart. He embraces the heart of God in his own heart. He wants what God wants. The person who says, you know, I see some stuff in the Bible and I like some of it and I can do some of it. But as far as, you know, being humble, I don't want that. You know, as far as having joy in the midst of trial, I don't want that. That's silly. See, that's a person who does not embrace the heart of God and the word of God and he cannot discern his errors. David goes on in verse 12 to say, Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Why would David want that? 
David doesn't want to be held responsible ultimately for the sins of his heart, just as you wouldn't want to be ultimately held responsible for the sins of your heart and of your life. How does that work? Well, Christ has taken them on. He bore our sins. He took them on. He took the guilt. He took the punishment. He took the pain. He took the power of sin and he overcame it in the resurrection. In verse 13, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. There's a, a deeply doctrinal passage at the beginning of Romans 3. And I won't go into all of it. But let me just tell you this. In Romans 3 verse 5, Paul says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? For if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Very presumptuous question, right? If my unrighteousness somehow results in God's righteousness, and the point there is simply this. In my unrighteousness, I serve as a backdrop against which God's righteousness is proven to be different. He, as we have said, is other than we are. So the unrighteousness of man's condition sets a foreground against which God's righteousness is displayed to be utterly and completely and perfectly righteous. So Paul says, if that's true, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Right? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. And then he says this, their condemnation is just. You get the point? The fact is the person who runs presumptuously into sin and says, well, you know, God's glory will be displayed in, even in my sin. Oh, and by the way, God will forgive me. That's the presumption that proves a person is yet condemned. Well, you know, we don't know his heart. But God knows his heart. This is why David pleads with God to keep him back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion. Let them not imprison me. Let them not take power in my life. I think maybe one of the most presumptuous sins of our day is the sin of declaring that one is receiving special revelation from God in addition to what's in the Bible. It usually goes like this. God told me something the other day. You know, let me tell you what God said to me when I was, you know, going through this experience. That's presumption. It's not true. God didn't tell you something in addition to what's in the Bible. You say, well, you weren't there. No, I don't need to be because Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And yet this is so common in churches today. People will say, God told me something. God gave me this song. God gave me this sermon. Revelation 22, verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. 
Continuing in verse 13, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. You see, if God is the redeemer of my soul, if he keeps me back from presumptuous sins and keeps them from having dominion of me, and he declares me innocent of my hidden faults based on the redemptive work of Christ, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, this is what you and I ought to be longing for. We ought to have this spirit of worshiping God rightly in our hearts. This ought to be who we are. We ought to be people whose lives reflect the reality that God's children are rewarded in their worship. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 3, uh, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So what's the solution to this dilemma? How does a person get through the day? What does he do about the reality that he is warned over the presumptuous sins in which he has engaged and might seemingly be willing to engage in? Here is David's solution. Here is the the practical application right here in the passage. Verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How does a person get into a rhythm, a practice, a pattern of having a heart whose contents, whose meditations are pleasing to and acceptable to the Lord? He meditates on the Word of God. He meditates on God's character in the Word of God. Again, A.W. Tozer has said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you treasure the word of God in heaven? Do you hold the word of God of such great value that you long to hear the word of God spoken and proclaimed with clarity and depth? Or do you need a 25-minute pep talk? What do you prefer? Do you think of the word of God as that at least weekly meal that is going to prepare you for becoming in a person who increasingly meditates upon the Word of God and longs to have thoughts that are acceptable in God's sight. Much hinges upon this practice. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 verse 15, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we make no apology for delivering the word of God in such a way that it will be challenging. We want it spoken with clarity. We want you to be people who speak it with clarity, conviction, power, but you do so in your life, but also in your words. I want to read to you a short section from the MacArthur Study Bible in the introductory words. John MacArthur has said, this book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy 
Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be saved. And practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you. Food to support you. And comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map. The pilgrim's staff. The pilot's compass. The soldier's sword. And the Christian's charter. Here heaven is open and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is the grand subject, our good, its design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its contents. Titus chapter 2, verse 15. Paul says to Titus, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is and will be the Really, the, the motto, the, the heartbeat of our church, that we will rest completely in the truth of the Word of God, no matter how offensive it might be in various places, but that it would result in the reward of those who will embrace it eagerly, as the Bereans and as the Thessalonians did. May it be that as you think about and prepare for ministry to others, that you would more quickly and more readily recognize that God's glory is revealed in His work, that God's story is revealed in His Word, and that you as one of God's children are rewarded in your worship. Father, thank You for the, the deep and abiding joy that You have provided to us in Your Word. We thank you for the privilege of, engage, of engaging in an experiential time of worship, but we, we trust that this would not be the moment in which we determine our theology, but that it would be the moment in which we express our theology. We thank you for the clarity of the truth that we'll sing now, and Lord, we ask that you might further knit our hearts together in the, the rich, deep, and strong foundation of your perfect word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.